They're like, well, back then, that was oppressive. Women, women were at home raising children back then because, because they were part of an oppressive regime called the patriarchy, and that was just the worst thing they could do, but they didn't know any other way. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So when he wrote in Titus chapter 2 that women are to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, lovers of their own husbands and their children, so that the word of God be not blasphemed, he didn't say it for just that. He didn't say it just for the island of Crete. He said it for then, and he says it today. So we are now in the midst of Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Acts chapter 17. We will begin reading today from verse 16, and Lord willing, we will finish the chapter. Uh, this is Paul as he goes to Mars Hill. But you're going to notice something that is very common in the life and ministry of Paul before he heads to Mars Hill. And that is, where does he end up in the beginning of our passage today? He goes to the synagogue. Everywhere you see Paul going to proclaim Christ, if there is a synagogue, that's where you find him. I'm reminded of what Jesus said when he was separated from his parents at the Passover feast when he was 12 years old. And they looked all over for him for three days and they couldn't find him and they were panicking. And they found him in the temple with the teachers reasoning. And the teachers were astounded and his parents were astounded. And he said, didn't you know that I need to be about my father's business? So by God's grace, if someone's ever looking for me on Sunday morning, they can usually find me in church. Because like my savior, I want to be about my father's business. So I, th I just think it's really interesting the consistency of Paul here that he's going to start out in the synagogues. You know, as we often think about the three year time that Paul spent in the desert being taught by uh, Jesus himself, preparing for ministry, but we need to not forget that Paul preached Christ and openly alleged that he was risen from the dead immediately, briefly upon his conversion. Because the need to preach Christ was so indelibly stamped upon his heart. And so that should encourage us that we have the best news in the world to share and that we should be willing to share it. But this is Paul answering the call in Athens. So let's begin today. And my first point is Paul shares Christ in the synagogue and the marketplace. We need to make sure that we are sharing Christ as we go into the community. 
You know, some people have this idea that they want to bring the lost in droves to their church, which is not a horrible idea. Please don't get me wrong. But the church is, I believe, for the believer. I think that evangelism is primary, primarily incumbent upon individuals. Why do I say this? Because people come into churches all the time, wolves in sheep's clothing, and the devil uses them to derail the ministry of the church. So I think we can be, become so seeker-friendly that we are not focusing on equipping the saints. So that is just something that has been heavy on my heart for several years, and I thought it was appropriate to mention here. So I'm going to read the first five verses of our section today, Acts 17, 16 to 21. And then we will open in a word of prayer. So Acts 17, 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and some said, what will this babbler say? Others, other, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spend their time in nothing else but either to tell or hear of some new thing. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would be with us. We thank you that you say where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now we yield this time over to you. Please use it as your spirit deems best. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here... Uh, that Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy. And, I, and it seems to be indicated from what I've read from scholars and from what I read here in the scriptures. That Paul had a ministry plan and that he was going to wait for Timothy and Silas before he, he did much in regards to that ministry plan. But we see here in verse 16 that it, that when he was in Athens his spirit was stirred in him because he saw the whole city given over to idolatry now one of the things that drives me in my ministry and in my podcast is the fact that I see a generation of people even that are being raised in quote unquote Christian homes that are not biblically literate that are believing lies and it makes it so I cannot stay quiet. 
Alistair Begg said, if you can do anything besides preach, do that. But if you know that you have to preach and you can do nothing else, then you know you're called to preach. And that is definitely the way that I feel and that's the way that seems to have been confirmed by others in my life. But I have to tell people the good news and speak for Jesus because when I was five years old, he spoke for me. And he said, I want you to be my servant. We talked earlier how no one seeks after God. But that God in his mercy seeks us. And so Paul is one who has been changed by the Holy Spirit of God and his spirit grieved within him. No doubt this is the Holy Spirit crying out within him. And because these are given people given holy over to idolatry. So he goes to the synagogue and he disputes with the devout persons and with those in the marketplace who were not so devout. And I love how it talks about how everybody in this area was seeking for the next new thing. Because don't you see that in our culture today? They're like, well, back then, that was oppressive. Women, women were at home raising children back then because, because they were part of an oppressive regime called the patriarchy, and that was just the worst thing they could do, but they didn't know any other way. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So when he wrote in Titus chapter 2, that women are to be discreet, changed keepers at home, lovers of their own husbands and their children, so that the word of God be not blasphemed, he didn't say it for just that. He didn't say it just for the island of Crete. He said it for then, and he says it today. God's standards do not change. If you scratch your head and you wonder why people are so confused today, why we don't even know what gender we are, I submit to you because we have gone away from the moral imperative of the Word of God, that says in the beginning God made them male and female. And he made them for a purpose. And both purposes are good and righteous and godly before him. We don't need a new thing. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. To be the one who makes us new. And of course, the re reaction is mixed. All of these philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they 
wanted to know what this babbler will say. What did Paul say in his letter to the Corinthians, I believe it was? He said, the cross is to them that perish foolishness. When Paul started talking in the synagogue and in the marketplace about the resurrection of the dead, they were like, wait a second, this life is all there is. How can you be babbling about the resurrection? But we see, if we study this time period and this place, Ray Stenden says each idol revealed that these men and women of Athens had a great capacity for God. They knew that there was something beyond men and they were seeking for it. But each idol also revealed a twisting and distorting of that capacity, a sabotaging of it. So as the apostle went around the city, his spirit was greatly troubled to see men and women blasted by this prostitution of their human powers through the worship of false gods. This is so true today. What is the modern philosophy, even here in America? Do what's best for you. Strive for your own happiness. I, I see even Christians sometimes posting this, and I understand that a lot of times it's, it's well-intentioned. Because there is a certain extent to where we need to do what is best for us and not put too much stock in the naysayers. I've heard it said that you should not accept criticism from someone whose opinion you wouldn't seek anyway. But there's also a hidden danger in this because we come upon this idea falsely that the goal of life is happiness. The goal of our lives is to come out from among them and be separate. Because we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy people, who are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we should do the works that He before ordained, that we should walk in them. So holiness should be our goal. Now, can happiness be the result? Absolutely. There's a lot of truth to this song. Happiness is to know the Savior. Living life within His favor. Having a change in my behavior. Happiness is the Lord. I've never been happier than when I'm serving the Lord. But happiness is not the goal. Happiness is the result of fulfilling the goal of holiness. And we need to get that right. Because when we get that out of order... We become twisted. Remember I said, these memes say, put your happiness before anybody else. But Paul said, let each just need other better than themselves. My job as a believer is to pull my brother and my sister up. Not put them down so I can go up. The Bible says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. Joseph didn't become 
the governor of Egypt because he exalted himself. No, he became the governor of Egypt because he humbled himself. And God exalted him in due time. Can we look at 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. If someone arrives there, if you could stand and read it for us. But we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. When Paul was in Athens and he was beholding these idols, the Spirit of God told him what to say. Remember what Jesus said when he was on the earth to his disciples. He said, Do not think about what you shall say when you're dragged before kings and before mean men. But rely on me. And in that very hour that you need the words, I will tell you what to say. And we see that in Acts chapter 4 with Peter and John. This man who had ran away from Jesus with his tail between his legs and denied that he ever knew Jesus. After the coming of the Holy Spirit, he spoke boldly on behalf of the Lord Jesus. And he didn't back down. I often wonder if there were anybody there that day that saw Peter in that courtyard that remember him denying the name of Jesus and then saw this new, redeemed Peter speaking forth the gospel in power. Some years ago, a great actor was asked at a drawing room function to recite for the pleasure of his fellow guests. He consented and asked if there was anything they specifically wanted to hear. After a moment's pause, an old minister of the gospel asked for Psalm 23. A strange look came over the actor's face. He paused for a moment, then said, I will on one condition, that after I have recited it, you, my friend, will do the same. I, said the preacher in surprise, I am not an elocutionist, but if you wish it, I shall do so. Impressively, the actor began the psalm. His voice and intonation was perfect. He held his audience spellbound, and as he finished, a great burst of applause broke from the guests. As it died away, the old man rose <laughs> and began to declaim the same psalm. His voice was not remarkable. His tone was not faultless. But when he finished, there was not a dry eye in the room. The actor rose and his voice quivered as he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I reached your eyes and ears. He has reached your hearts. The difference is just this. I know the psalm, but he knows the shepherd. Most people, well, I don't know about now, but... Most people in my generation, I should say, 
if you walked up to them and said, can you recite Psalm 23? Most people, at least in Michigan, could quote a big portion of it because here in West Michigan, we have quite a Christian heritage still. But there's a difference between being able to quote the psalm and knowing the shepherd. So I guess that's a question for all of us. Do we know the shepherd? I hope you do. I trust that most, if not all of you do, but it's so important for us to know the shepherd. The Pharisees knew the psalms. You ever think about the fact that the Pharisees at one point probably had to memorize Psalm 22? And yet they saw it lived out before them and they missed it on the day that Jesus died on the cross. So my second point, Paul declares on Mars Hill that the unknown God is knowable. There are some sects even of quote-unquote Christianity, especially some of the stricter Amish sects, that believe it's prideful to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven. The Apostle John didn't feel that way, though, because he wrote, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. I cling to that. I'm not able to keep myself saved. I make mistakes. I lose things all the time. Just ask my family. But my life is hid with Christ in God. Therefore, I am safe. So let's look at Acts 17, 22 to 26. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, Neither is worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life to all breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So Paul sees this monument to the unknown God. Well, he immediately realizes that he has the opportunity to tell them that not only is God knowable, but he knows God. And that he can share God with them. And he starts out by saying, God made the world and all things therein. You know, I believe that the biggest reason why people believe in evolution today because if they believed in the creation of the world they'd have to believe in the creator of the world if I just got here by some cosmic accident called the big bang then 
I should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I'm going to die and go into the abyss and no one's going to care. But the reality is that before I was formed in the womb, God knew me. The reality is that I was knit together by my Creator in the womb. And so thus, not only am I precious in His sight, but I have a purpose. And so Paul, rather than saying, Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross for your sins, he's starting with the creation of the world. He said, God who created the world is knowable. And then, I wish that all of America could read verse 26. Especially in this day and age in which we live. And hath made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. All of us have the same blood flowing through our veins. There is no room for any of us, anywhere, to think they were better than someone else. In August of 2004, thousands of spectators converged upon Athens to watch 11,099 athletes compete in the games of the 28th Olympiad. Visitors and athletes alike delighted in such famous sites as the Parthenon and the Angora. Yet one ancient visitor had a much different reaction to this city. Instead of relaxing, he was agitated. Instead of beautiful buildings, he saw countless idols. His heart burned that the Lord was denied his rightful praise and glory. Paul's strange idea caught people's attention. Epicureans sought a life of tranquility, free from pain, disturbing passions or superstitions. Stoics tried to live in harmony with nature and rational principles. Intrigued, these philosophers brought Paul to the Areopagus, meaning Mars Hill, a common location for public debates. Altars to the unknown gods dated back six centuries before Christ when a, flag, when a plague struck Athens. Fearful that some god was offended, people erected altars to unknown gods to end the pestilence. And that's a selection from today in the Word. So they had these plagues. They didn't know where they came from, so they erected altars to the unknown god to try to stop the pestilence. I, I've seen some discussion threads online again recently. People saying that they can't believe in God or Jesus because of the suffering in the world. 
I, and I get that to a certain extent, but the reality is that whether you believe in God or not, the suffering still exists. So I would much rather have someone to go to with my suffering, to ask me to walk with me through my suffering, and to potentially have him take it away, but more importantly, to hold me throughout it, than to wake up with the same suffering and no explanations whatsoever. And I tried to issue that challenge. Because suffering is a part of life. And it's still hard. We still wonder why babies die. And sometimes it seems like old evil men stay alive. We still wonder why friends that we love battle infertility when others want the right to suck their babies into a sink. It doesn't make sense. But God is sovereign over all. And we can trust Him. On this issue of knowing God. Let's look at John chapter 17. Verse 3. John 17. Verse 3. This is Jesus speaking. And I know that all of the Bible is important. But sometimes I think about it in terms of. If Jesus said it, it's even more important. Because these are the very words of the Word of God. John 17, verse 3. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast said. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God. See, this is the problem with people that say Jesus was just a good teacher. Because he says there's only one true God. There's only one way. Jesus was very definitive. Eternal life is in knowing God the Father and His Son Jesus, whom He freely sent to us. Many years ago, when Lord Tennyson was Poet Laureate, he was walking one day with a friend in his garden, talking on subjects of public interest of that time. The poet's friend was a believer in the Lord Jesus and sought as opportunities to testify for him. Pausing for a moment in their conversation, he took the poet by the arm and asked, What do you think of Jesus Christ? Tennyson pointed to the flower blooming in all its beauty by the pathway and said, As sun is to that flower... So is Jesus Christ to me. Jesus is our very life. He gives purpose. He gives life. He makes dead people alive. 
Our third point is Paul shares how his audience can know him. Acts 17, 27 to 31. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. For so much that then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of his ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. So remember earlier he was talking about Jesus raised from the dead. And he said, this separates the true God from the false gods that you made. We are made in the very image of God. And Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he came down and became one of us and took and took upon him the form of a man and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And because of that, he can save us. And we need to be saved because he's appointed a day when everyone on the earth will be judged. All those who have turned their back to God, He will judge. You may not think God exists, but He knows you do. And one day, you will come face to face with the one whom you have determined does not exist. But for many people, it is less about God not existing than it is about them being angry with God for not existing in their own image. And so, Paul is talking about God winking at ignorance. But now, there is a time for everyone to repent. Paul talks about this in his own testimony, because he said he was a blasphemer. But he did it in ignorance and unbelief, and then his eyes were opened, and he trusted Jesus Christ. It's important for us to realize that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The difference is those who don't trust Christ 
will be judged on their own merit. That's exactly what they want. They often say, well, I want to be judged on my own merit because I don't want anybody to judge me except for God. But a true believer realizes that if we were judged on our own merit, we would be hopeless. If it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus, we would be hopeless. But now is Christ risen. Glory, hallelujah. For in him we live and move and have our being. I fear that these words are so familiar that they will lose their force. Let's consider each phrase separately. Your life is not really yours. It comes from God and he can take it back anytime he wants. In him we live. Our very life is held in God's hand. Do you understand that you are completely dependent on God for the life you possess? Your life is not really yours. It comes from God and he can take it back anytime he wants. James 4.14 reminds us that life itself is a vapor that appears for a brief moment and vanishes away. Anyone who has ever blown hot breath on a cold window pane knows that you have to work fast to write your name in the vapor before it disappears. That's your life. All 70 or 80 years of it, it's a vapor that begins to disappear the moment you are born. Sometimes we forget how fragile life can be. This week someone reminded me that there is a thin line between where you are right now and utter catastrophe. Just a phone call and your life could be changed forever. Things happen so quickly. A speeding car, a stray bullet, a sudden stroke, an unexpected heart attack, and people are saying, doesn't she look so natural? He's speaking of the corpse in the coffin. Sometimes the line is so thin as to be non-existent. If you want to know what your life is like, go to a cemetery and look at any headstone. There is a name, two dates, and a dash. That's what you get when you die, a little dash to summarize your whole earthly existence. We move because he first moves in us. In him we move. Raise your arm above your head. Now wave it around. What made your arm move? Your muscles did. Who told the muscles to move? The electrical impulses did. Where did the impulses come from? From the brain through the nervous system. How does all this work? I'm not sure, but the scientists can explain it. Now here's the important question. Where did the power come from to make all that happen? It comes from God. You cannot move a hand or a foot or open your mouth to speak unless God gives you the strength to do it. We move because he first moves in us. We have our being. Have you ever wondered why you are the way you are? Your friends, your friends have probably wondered that from time to time. Where did your personality come from? Who gave you your new, unique genetic blueprint? We know that inside each cell in your body is a DNA code that contains every secret to your physical existence. For one person it reads blue eyes, brown hair, five foot seven, good at tennis, bad at math, with a tendency to overeat and a birthmark above your right knee, plus a few million other details. Everything about you is in your DNA, that double helix code that contains all your secrets. Who arranged your DNA? God did. That's what Psalm 139.13 means when it says, He knit you together in your mother's womb. These things that make you unique come from God. And that is from how God reveals himself to us by Ray Pritchard.
I want to have you write down these passages. We won't go to them. Well, let's go to one of them. Let's go to Colossians 1, 14 to 17. Colossians 1, 14 to 17. And then you can write down 1 John 1, 8 to 10 as a further reference. But let's look at this Colossians passage. If somebody gets there, if you could read it for us, that would be great. Beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So God holds everything together. When the caravans in the desert are in want of water, they are accustomed to send a camel with its rider some distance in advance. Then after a time follows another, and then after a short interval another. As soon as the first man finds water, almost before he stoops down to drink, he shouts aloud, come. The next man hearing the call repeats it, come. The nearest man again takes up the call, come, until the surrounding desert echoes with the word come. This is a great invitation, word of the gospel, come, come, come. That's from Gospel Stories for the Young. And as I close, I just want to read the last few verses here of Acts chapter 17, verses 31 to 34, says, Because... He has appointed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man with whom he hath ordained. Wherefore he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some knocked and others said, We will hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men claimed to him and believed, among them which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So some people received, some people did not. There was undoubtedly the Stoics who were sincere in their desire to know more about Christ, but they were also procrastinators. As far as we know, they never heard Paul a second time. These scholars succumbed to the curse of the intellectual. They were guilty of academic detachment. They were remotely interested in Christ, but only in the academic sense. Procrastination in receiving Christ can be just as fatal as total rejection of Christ. And I think that's so important for us because we remember later on in Acts we'll come to the story of Herod Agrippa and what does he say to Paul? He says, almost you persuaded me to become a Christian. Almost persuaded is not persuaded at all. But if you take your place at the level ground of the cross he will bless you he will keep you and he will make his face to shine upon you and he will give you peace the only way to walk to have peace in life is to walk daily with the prince of peace Christ Jesus Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for this story in Acts chapter 17, how Paul burned with the desire to share the gospel. When we think of Paul, we often think of this really bold man, this one who can't wait to share the gospel, and yet he shared with the churches that he wrote to, that he wanted more boldness in the gospel. So Lord, may we have more boldness in the gospel because it truly is the good news. You've told us, Lord, that if the Son therefore shall set you free, you will be free indeed. May many find freedom today. In Jesus' name, amen.